we need to absolutely absolutely keep aside the prescriptive approach in our development you know we prescribe development which i think is not the good idea development is about engaging with people helping them themselves to redefine the development what does development mean to them the entire concept of imposing or rather bringing what a western culture says or feels and bringing it on to the the south or what we say the developing world i think the time is it's over any service that we are talking about as a part of development i think there are three key words we need to work around one is accessibility quality and affordability with equity Welcome back to the Rethinking Development podcast. My name is Safa and I'm your host. Thank you for joining me as we speak with and learn from practitioners of all career stages and different organizational affiliations around the world. In our conversations, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different practitioners. Our guest today is Dr. Deepak Gupta. Dr. Gupta has over 28 years of experience as a program and strategic communication advisor for various UN agencies including UNFPA, UNODC, UNICEF and WHO. He has designed and managed numerous large strategic communication interventions and advocacy campaigns on various development and health issues. His work on risk communication strategies in emergency situations such as post-tsunami situations and avian influenza context is particularly well noted. He is also a master trainer and expert faculty member at a number of different institutes where he leads courses related to strategic communication for development and has also published extensively on strategic communication issues. Dr. Gupta, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you, Safa. To begin the conversation, could you share a bit more about why you were interested in studying strategic communication and what motivated you to begin working in development, especially with this focus on public health issues? In fact, I started working in the urban slums in the city of Delhi in the mid 80s and late 80s, pursuing my college studies in the university. And you just named the issue, and I think we had a problem there. whether it was clean drinking water whether it was uh, you know child mortality or in maternal health issues particularly girl child i mean they going to school on a regular basis then one realized that i think it was basically the development communication that plays the real fulcrum in the development and health paradigm it's about connecting with people empowering them with the information and knowledge resources and enabling them to bring about positive changes in their lives if we para drop ourselves into any community as a third party whether we are a donor or we are an ngo i think it doesn't work like that it has to be participatory you have to engage with people you have to actually sit down with them to design processes for example there were schemes available in the government and they were not properly conveyed to these people they did not understand them correctly because the messages were not very clear the tools used to communicate with the urban slums perhaps were not those tools as required so i think there and then i decided that i think this is one major missing link and that really excites me for my further academic preparation and also for my work 
I think that was a turning point where I decided that I need to work in the area of strategic communication that would uh, empower people, that would, of course, be helping them in adapting to the more positive lifestyles and positive behaviors. So, yeah, I think this was it. Sometimes people think about strategic communication, communication for development. There's this question of how do you differentiate between mainstream corporate communication tactics and marketing strategies? How do you compete with them? Because, for example, in some cases, there's really a push by some corporations pushing a certain kind of public health behavior and then organizations like UNICEF and WHO trying to push back against that. Could you speak to that type of ecosystem a bit and how you have experience working in an environment where there are mixed messages from different actors? Exactly. You know, overall, I would say the communication parabola remains the same. You know, it's about connecting with people. It's about core messages that needs to be delivered. It's about making sure that the people have understood the messages that you're trying to give them. It's about, you know, taking their feedback. And it's about enabling them to bring about change. Now, the basic marked difference between the two, I would say, are the brass tags. Our results are about empowerment, about bringing in the equity and equality issues, addressing lifestyle issues such as health, such as education, such as overall development, life skills, and so on. Whereas in the corporate sector, I think they are driven by the profit point of view Classic example I'll give you, and I, I think in many countries I have faced that, and particularly in Indonesia. Look, we are promoting breastfeeding, inclusive and complementary breastfeeding. At the same time, there are these big corporations promoting formula milk, and then they come up with their communication content, which is very attractive, which is actually showing a very healthy child after consuming formula milk, how it is very important for your child to have this milk. You know, so both the campaigns are countering each other. We are sending messages to the communities. We are trying to convince them, we are trying to work along with them that you know, how important it is for the child to be with the mother and take the breastfeed. And then you get the messages through television, radio, and through their marketing campaigns that no, 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 this formula milk that we bring to you and we give you some free gifts along with it, how it is important for your child and so on and so forth. So therefore, I think it's important to understand that we have tough competitors sitting in the corporations who are promoting something that's important to them from the profit point of view, but which is absolutely counterproductive from the point of view of child's health. One has faced these uh, situations more often than not, and I think we have been able to, by and by, address those through the communities. Speaking of addressing those through the community, you've worked in many different projects, many different countries, both in your home country of India and also in many other countries. Could you speak to us a bit about the difference between maybe working on a program in your home country versus working in a new international setting as an international staff member and what your experiences have been in terms of establishing relationships with communities, learning about the different social determinants of health in different contexts? What has that difference been like for you? I think the second part of your question actually has answered the first part. You know, you said it all because, you see, in the international setting, that is a country away from your own domicile, is always more challenging. And in fact, you know, the learning curve goes up. You're always on the toes every day on a 24-7 basis. You are craving to learn more. 
yeah, whereas in your own country, somewhere, somewhere, you know, a sort of comfort factor sets in. Being a national in my own country, uh, having, you know, lived here or studied here and, you know, sort of known the communities a little better. Yes, the things are a little easier. Whereas, you know, in another country, you start from scratch. But I think when you are in another country, in another sociocultural setting, you're always learning more and more. Although I must admit, because I have particularly myself, have worked in the developing countries mostly. And by and large, if you look at the socioeconomic indicators, they are similar with some varying degree of differences. But the cultural settings are, of course, very, very different. In some settings, perhaps the local elected leaders, those are more powerful in terms of serving as catalytic change agents. So I think those cultural issues are always more challenging. When it comes to designing campaigns to change people's behavior, what do you think can help balance or address the type of different power dynamics that exist in terms of not only power dynamics between perhaps a UN agency and a local community, but also within a community since there are many different kind of identities and subgroups within a community as well? The entire, the entire purpose of communication for development in social and behavior change communication is to bring people on board. It's about learning about them and engaging with them to bring about positive changes in their lives, you know, through empowerment, through knowledge resources, through information that they may not be having at that point in time, to connect them with the services which are available, so on and so forth. And I think they are my end clients, you know, from the perspective of studying the marketing model, they are the end clients. Now, I need to understand about them as much as possible before actually we design any intervention. So I think it's, it's important that right from the stage one of research, you know, which we call risk factor analysis, I think we adopt the participatory method in which equity is absolutely maintained at all stages of participation in terms of gender, in terms of the village head, or it is the, the poorest of the law in the community. So from every perspective, I think it has to be completely, totally participatory. It could be, of course, smaller sample. It may not be 100 on 100 people, but out of those 10 or 15 that you have picked, it's a fair representation of the people from the community. So I think participatory method is all about bottom-up design modeling. It not only addresses the concerns in a bigger way of issues such as racism, if there is any in the community, or, you know, there could be religious racism, so on and so forth. So I think those issues need to be addressed at the same time. Even while I'm talking about, you know, hand hygiene or family planning, sexual reproductive health or adolescent life skills issues. Participatory method, I think, is not a research method. I think it's a design model. And I think once you start with that participatory approach, the entire program design falls in place. You know, mm -hmm. whether it is planning cycles, whether it is monitoring of your program, whether it is message development, even selection of tools and communication channels that we want to pick, because it's very easy for the communication managers to sit and design that this is the most innovative, this is the most technically savvy, but possibly you don't even realize that that's not something that this particular community actually accesses on a regular basis. So I think there are umpteen number of issues 
which are automatically addressed once we we take the root of participatory model you know of our our communication design elements in terms of power dynamics i think it's nothing but the equity that really really governs the participatory approach one has to really really work around you know if there are village heads or there are uh, district heads involved the women leaders the household members and the, you know representatives from the community right from the stage 1 till we evaluate our communication program i think it's all pervasive this participatory method is all pervasive method in the communication for development have there been instances or examples where perhaps community members have said actually no we don't agree with this or we have our own reasons for doing it have there been these kind of conversations that you've been a part of yes certainly safa many a times many a times because it is about bringing them on the same page it's about bringing them on board and we are not coercing them with the behavior change be it any behavior you know because i think the very fulcrum of our communication for development approach is not prescriptive we don't want to prescribe and instruct that this is what is good for you so therefore you do that yeah it's about the themselves realizing what works best for them within their given context i mean there are multiple examples you know, whether it's a diarrhea control program or even water and sanitation programs family planning programs but i must say i think family planning that is particularly under sexual reproductive health that was one tough area to work around because there were disagreements there are certain religious communities they think that their religion does not allow them to practice family planning so i think then one has to really really work that much harder actually to bring on board their religious and faith leaders to actually talk to them through the interpersonal communication methods but you know there is one mantra i think one one has really learned over a period of time human touch is very important in the entire communication cycle you know even if i'm using say seven eight or nine tools of communication right from the beginning till my program finishes somewhere in between that cycle a human touch must come if i think that i can really be successful in running my c4d program only through mass media only through social media only through you know the mid media and billboards and posters and so on well in some cases it just might work but then if i'm really really looking at very good results and ownership by people at some point in time interpersonal communication must come in whether it is provided by the health anms or the other social cadres at the local level you know trained counselors available human touch this is where i really emphasize that somewhere if we can afford if our program has that much of uh, luxury of time and resources i think interpersonal communication must be woven in into the program because i have seen that with faith leaders you know especially under sexual reproductive health and family planning program one on one communication or one with the group communication i think it worked it worked wonders i mean no poster no radio advertisements no television interaction could ever deliver those results as interpersonal communication so these are some of the experiences i would say where 
participatory models and people's engagement is the magical mantra for a successful communication for development program. You mentioned earlier that sometimes time is a luxury and sometimes on the podcast we speak about this tension between immediate change or the need for immediate impact and the the fact that sometimes change takes a very long time or in some cases you know there are advancements and then there's kind of a reversal so it's two steps forward one step back You've worked on many different issues, including polio eradication campaigns and efforts. Could you speak to us a bit about that tension between two steps forward, one step back, or that the change that you're trying to work towards taking maybe years or even decades in some cases? Polio eradication is just one example. In India, I think it was an uphill task. It It took a lot. It took a lot of energies. You know, what happens, for example, in the polio eradication program, and I think it is just one example, but it happens in many, many, many other programs, you know, be it development or public health. You are going ahead, you have done your, you know, entire strategy development process, you have gone ahead with the message design, you are all ready now to launch, your program is running, and suddenly there is some misinformation or there is some kind of a rumor that emerges in a community. And the, I wouldn't say the entire program, but a huge part of the program goes kaput. And suddenly you are just left wondering what's gone wrong and why is it, you know? And that is where the risk communication comes to play the role. I think our preparedness to handle, our preparedness to handle such rumors or myths or misconceptions for example, I just a little while ago, I gave you an example of faith leaders. I have noticed the local faith leaders and the local elected leaders, even at the village level, local women leaders, very, very, very powerful. You know, they are very, very powerful. I think their engagement, when you bring them on board, any misinformation or any humor, if you want to address it through these catalytic change agents, they actually serve as the best medicine at that point in time. You know, I think you you can revert and you can further go forward in your program through your magic band of using uh, faith leaders, elected leaders, and the local women leaders, women activist groups, and so on. And I think that works. That really, really works. So yeah, one has faced those kind of challenges in various, various programs that, you know, one has been working in. And um, I think I would normally look for an interpersonal connection to remedy out from such a situation. And particularly if there are faith leaders, locally elected leaders and women leaders around, I think I would look for collaborations and partnerships with them. You mentioned the the power of rumors and misinformation and the negative impact it can have. And now, of course, we're in the context of the coronavirus pandemic and globally so many different agencies organizations governments have been scrambling to really put out strategic health communication messages and in a lot of ways there's been criticism there's been mistakes made and of course there's been misinformation there's also been rumors and a lot of these health agencies have had to fight back against the rumors Could you speak to us a bit about, you know, from your professional perspective, your experiences, how you think globally these agencies have handled health communication, strategic communication? What have been the ethical issues and the problems that have been most concerning for you from your perspective? 
I would upfront say that I think behavior change communication sector should have performed a little better right from the beginning in terms of the messaging, in terms of the media we are using. I think it was messed up right in the very beginning, unfortunately so. You know, there are multiple aspects that we need to understand here. One, this is definitely a new virus. So I think we all need to understand that, including the health agencies, the departments in each country, you know, Department of Infectious Diseases or Departments of Epidemiology. Till now, if we notice, I think every other day there is a new research that comes up. We are still learning about this virus. So I think that one thing we need to really keep as a common denominator. However, having said that, I think there was first mistake that was done. There was a bit of delay in declaring it as a pandemic. You know, I think quite a lot of time was lost in that. And I think many countries lost out some valuable time in the beginning of the year. So the confusion between the political communication and the strategic health communication, I think, still continues. I mean, there are many countries where there are political motives. The leadership, the political leadership of a country is conveying one thing, whereas the science says something else. And I think just a little while ago, we were talking about how powerful some faith leaders and local political leaders can be. I mean, that deviates, that deviates from the line of scientific communication. So that's a second aspect we need to keep in mind. Third aspect, I think, with the current pandemic, you know, social media is both actually a boon and also can be a curse. It really depends how we use it. The major part of misinformation, I think, which has which has really come by all through this period of COVID-19 is thanks to social media. You know, I think there are people who have found new platforms to communicate and they really like to share information. They go around sharing it with, you know, 10, 20, 100, thousands, and many, many thousands. And I think that suddenly by the time you realize that this was a fake information that came to you, it has actually reached, I don't know how many millions. And then to counter that, you know, so I think the preparedness is the key. I think that the key to success is even now, I think it's not over. We are still very much in the thick of pandemic. I think how quick, without wasting time, how quick are we encountering a fake information? Fake, quote-unquote. I mean, as in, you know, because somebody has shared it, possibly thinking that it is a correct information, but that's a fake one. I mean, that's scientifically not verified. That's not a correct information. This is actually all about behavioral issues. There are very specific four or five indicated behaviors, accelerators, as we call and I think if those are conveyed very clearly to the masses, then we have quite a lot done. We have covered one major hurdle in, in, in addressing this pandemic. But my problem is that I'm noticing even those key behaviors, accelerators, are not being addressed correctly. You know, for example, just the other day, somewhere on the social media, I saw one particular government and their key message was, let's flatten the curve together. Now. What does that mean to a common person? Let's flatten the curve together. I mean, scientifically, maybe because we work in the same field, I could understand what it meant, you know, flatten the curve. For a common person, a rickshaw puller, a taxi driver, a local shopkeeper, possibly won't even understand what do they want to convey with the flattening the curve and that two together. 
I mean, what is it that he or she could do? And I think social distancing, that word should not have been used right in the beginning. What we are talking about is physical distancing. But nonetheless, the term was used first time and then it caught on. And I think that become a term which is social distancing. So I think there are very specific behavioral indicated actions that needs to be conveyed. Say, for example, risk perception theory or trust determination theory, you know, straight out of the textbooks. In these circumstances, even if we use instructional communication or what we say prescriptive communication, it will work because people are in panic. People definitely want to save their lives and their lives of their loved ones. We need to ensure that when you are giving the message out, people trust you. People really, really trust you, what you are saying. And the behaviors that you are suggesting are actionable. One, two, three, four actionable behaviors. And they can see the outcomes. You can give examples in your communication package that this is how it works. And look at this example. This is worked here. So I think it is as simple as that. And yet I think we, we haven't done so well in COVID-19 communication. And uh, no wonder I think we are where we are, you know, so. You mentioned the, the use of social media as, you know, one main tool for misinformation to spread. Could you speak to us a bit about your thoughts on social media as a tool? There's so many documentaries and reports about various organizations using social media for undemocratic or unethical purposes, how social media is used to, you know, unconsciously change behavior. It's doing it in a way where the user or the person who's being targeted doesn't even realize it's happening. Thank you, Sapna. I think, you know, the constant hammering, as it is called, constant hammering, you know, 10 times if you tell a person again and again and yet again that this is a fact, this is a fact, this is a fact. I think by the end of the day, a person more often than not starts believing possibly that's the fact. So I think having said that, having said that, why even talk about some individuals or little organizations? I would say major political parties, even the governments in some countries, I think are really, really misusing the social media. A potential tool to convert people or to bring them on board with their ideology through social media. I still continue to maintain that social media definitely I think it's a double-edged sword. You know, it's a boon for sure, and it can also be a curse. It's our preparedness, how we actually handle social media. And this is relatively a new media. It is relatively, perhaps, maybe a little over a decade that I think it has come into being. It can be so powerful. Let me tell you that, especially when we deal with young people. You know, look at the demographics, look at the world's population, especially countries like India or most countries in South Asia. I think a huge percentage of people are either adolescents or young. And, and most of them are with smartphones or access to Internet, using computers or laptops. You know, they have access to social media. It depends really, you know, how strategic you are in using social media and how prepared you are encountering if there is any bad campaign or campaign that really counters your positive messaging. So one has to be really prepared. One has to be very strategic in using it. 
Hmm. Speaking of, you know, new mediums, different mediums, you've also been quite active in the edutainment genre in terms of using documentaries or videos to promote healthy behavior. Could you speak to us a bit about that genre and the impact? Nowadays, we're kind of in a time where if someone has a question or wants to learn more about an issue, they tend to go to Netflix, watch a documentary about it, or to, you know, watch a video rather than read a book or read a report. Absolutely, yes. And it's nothing really very new. I must say that, Zafa, because I think way back in the decade of 80s also, and then in the early 90s, I think there are many, many countries, Nigeria and some other country examples, you know, even Ethiopia, and of course, within South Asia, even India, Bangladesh, they have used TV serials, they have used MTV videos, they have used the pop singing, the rock shows to convey a social message. And I think, especially, as I said a little while back, with young people, I think if we use these medium and we are packaging our message with the entertainment, whether it's music or it's a drama, family drama, or, you know, a cinema has a core message that you want to give. For example, about menstrual hygiene, there was one feature film made in Bombay a couple of years ago on sanitary pads. And I think that film really, really brought about a huge change in the region. I think the whole idea of promoting menstrual hygiene, even the government started looking at menstrual hygiene issue very seriously at a school level. I think there were lots of NGOs who started participating after that in providing girls the pads and so on. The film's, I think, title was The Pad Man. So this is just one example. Edutainment, I think, is one strategy that is always, always very, very viable and extremely, extremely acceptable, even culturally in the local context. However, in some cases, let's switch gears and come to COVID-19 now. In, in certain situations, I think much more serious communication where I think entertainment you may not have, again, the luxury of developing a message and then padding it up with the entertainment. You may not have that luxury available. You just immediately need to send the communication to the people, however prescriptive it may sound. So I think situations vary. You know, situations vary. Under the regular public health programs, under regular developmental issues, yes, I think edutainment strategy works. But I think in certain pandemics or disasters or emergencies, of course, you know, you need different tools to work around to address those issues. Shifting a bit now to your experiences just working in UN agencies, working in different organizations, both as a national staff member, as an international staff member, as a consultant. Could you speak to us a bit about the, the work culture you've seen or maybe some of the hierarchies you've observed or the power dynamics you've observed between different actors in an organization? What have been your observations or your thoughts with maybe some of the ethical issues that exist in the work culture of organizations in this sector? If I really reflect on my last nearly three decades in various capacities, in various countries, somewhere it is donor-driven for sure. I have to confess that. The countries who are the primary donors to any agency, we tend to get donor-driven, which is unfortunate. 
But by and large, I still observe that I think there is a programming freedom. So donor will not be able to interfere too much with your regular programming. For example, I'll give you a very small example. At a certain point in time, the sexuality education to young people and abortion became a huge issue. It became such a huge issue. And this was, I think, the time when I was still with the India country program. And suddenly we had to switch gears because the donor absolutely wanted to withdraw the entire program money, which, of course, I found it at that point in time extremely, extremely painful. Why do we have to readjust our programs? Because the donor feels this way and their ideology, of course, is driven by politics and so on. I think our agencies do suffer a bit of uh, donor-driven sort of nature of our program which I think is, is, is part of the game. I think which is part of the game, unfortunately. You mentioned how you've been doing this work for nearly three decades now, and over the years there have been new crises, new issues, new problems. What would you say continues to be important to rethink at a broader general sectoral level so that whatever goals particular programs have are reached in a more meaningful way? I think it's time to really, really rethink and redesign the approaches in development sector because, you know, we have been talking about participative method. But are we actually participatory when it comes to, say, for example, global or even at the national level? I think number one would be we need to absolutely, absolutely keep aside the prescriptive approach in our development. You know, we prescribe development, which I think is not the good idea. Development is about engaging with people, helping them themselves to redefine the development. What does development mean to them? For example, even the education models. If we see the theory of diffusion by Herbert Rogers, this very great social scientist, I think the entire concept of imposing or rather bringing what the Western culture says or feels and bringing it onto the, the South or what we say the developing world. I think the time is not for that now. I think it's, it's over. We need to involve people. We need to involve communities in defining development. That's one. I think that's very, very important. Any service that we are talking about as a part of development, I think there are three key words we need to work around. One is accessibility, quality, and affordability. With equity, that is, I think, the underlying. For example, right now, if, if I can contextualize it, say, for example, vaccines. Now, if the vaccines come out, say, by the year end of the next year for the COVID-19, my major concern would be, is the dissemination of that vaccine done with equity? Is the last person in the queue getting that vaccine? Those are the issues, really, you know, the whole approach of development needs to be redefined. As I said, again, I will repeat it, you know, strict adherence to the participatory bottom-up design models. I think that's where I think the word development will get redefined. Because if it is a bottom-up design model where communities and individuals are participating in redefining development, people's ownership, I think that's another key factor. People must own the change that we are talking about. It should be people's owned. I mean, it should not be just prescribed change. 
that this is how we feel and I think it will be good for you. Therefore, please change. No, I think it should be people's own change. The ownership is not complete unless the community is also engaged in monitoring of any program, monitoring their own progress made. They must also participate and learn. This is where the change has not happened. And these are the reasons why the change is not happening. Monitoring ownership by the community, that needs to be people-centric. Last but not the least, as a communication scholar, I must also say that I think communication tools need to be contextual. All through our conversation, we have spoken about it. Fancy communication tools may look good as innovations, but I think they need to be contextualized. They need to be actually liked by and accessed by the people with whom we are working. So I think a couple of those things whose time has come, you know, rethinking development, the time has come for that. And some of these elements, I think, are integral to that change. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for sharing those elements and your time today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it thoroughly and I really look forward to more such debates and more such discussions to set the agenda rolling especially, you know, with the young people in the community. And I think if we are able to set the ball rolling, there's a long way, I think, we will, we will be able to cover. Thank you so much, Safa. Thank you. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. I also want to thank our listeners. Thank you for tuning in. We invite you to join in on the conversation. You can do this in a number of ways. Number one, you can send us a short voice message sharing a specific ethical issue that you've navigated in your career. You can visit our website and hit the send us a voice message button for more details on how to do that. Or number two, you can email us a short letter to your younger self sharing what you wish you had known when you first started working in the sector or tips about some of the things you've learned over the years. You can also keep up to date with our latest episodes and offerings by signing up for a newsletter, listening and subscribing to our podcast on your preferred podcast player, and following us on social media. On our website, you can also find a donation link where you can choose either a one-time donation or reoccurring monthly donation option to help us cover our production costs. Thank you again for tuning in. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all next time. Until then, take care.